invite you to open up to 1 Corinthians 15. We're starting in 1 Corinthians 15 for a couple moments, and then we'll get to Acts 15. As you do, I want you to think of your last fight. Um, So if we can, I'm trying to advance this. Can we get my keynote back up, please? That would be dynamite. I just need that first. Nope, I need to go back several. Don't look. All right. Thank you. All right. I want you to think of your last fight. And I want you to think of an actual fight, like an actual conflict that you had with someone, uh, maybe a family member, coworker, uh, neighbor, mailman, I don't know. Can't be your dog, it has to be a person. Um, and I want you to sort of get a specific thing in your mind. And here are just some questions that kind of popped up in my mind as I thought about conflict. Um, was it worth it? Who was it with? Um, what was it about? Uh, did it resolve? Would you do anything different? Like as you reflect back on this specific conflict, uh, that's a nice song. I like that one. Um, what good came from it? What good came from this conflict, if any? And is there any lingering resentment or is there any lingering regret that sort of comes from this one? Um, what's kind of funny is when you talk to people outside of the situation, like not being within sort of the emotion and intensity and history of two people in conflict, a lot of conflicts look kind of silly uh, from the outside. Let me tell you something that I fight about. Um, I love to have conflict over dished house. Now, um, I have a couple of my family members here in the front row, and they will very much attest to this. Um, This little soldier is a clean dish towel that this morning was pulled out of a drawer in our kitchen. And do you know what this dish towel is designed to do? He is designed to fight the good fight of good hygiene. That's right. So he is designed to hang on our oven. And once you have washed your hands, you can dry it right on this nice clean dish towel, assured that this thing will be clean. You're not going to dirty your hands by drying your hands on a dirty dish towel. That would be nonsense. You know what else it's good for? Drying clean dishes. Operative word, clean. Right? So um, this goes way back to one of my first roommates in Colorado. His name is Jeff Peterson. And Jeff and I came from different worlds regarding dish towels. Um, I just said, listen, we can give and take on all kinds of things, but how about this? Just try this system out for me. What if we had dish towels that were clean and we only used them to dry our clean hands or our clean dishes? That sound good? He's like, all about it. But guess what Jeff would do? He'd spill mayonnaise on the counter. Guess what he'd do? He'd grab for the closest thing nearby, which is this little soldier who's trying to remain clean to fight the good fight of clean, good hygiene, right? So he'd wipe mayonnaise on it. What would he do with the towel? You guessed it. He'd hang it back on the oven. Guess what his roommate would do? He would have his clean hands now dirtied and soiled with mayonnaise. This is a problem. It reached a pinnacle. Now, loads of grace. We're both Christian young guys trying to figure this out. Loads of grace. But it it reached a boiling point when at one point I went to dry a dish and it reeked of pickle juice. I mean, you could wring pickle pickle juice out of this dish towel. Now, um, as you can see, dad's a little intense about the dish towel thing, okay? Um, what we do in our home is we do all kinds of coaching, and we do all kinds of things, and I'm not sure everyone is bought into my deep philosophy on dish towels. Don't you agree that it's silly to fight about dish towels? It really is. It's utterly silly to fight about dish towels. There's a lot of ways to do dishes and clean hands. I'm pretty sure I've landed on a good system, by the way, um, but that's beside the point, um, 
as I look at this, as I look at this list, and I could think about a latest interaction about dish towels, if I ever take the feelings and development of my kids and put dish towels above them, that's utter foolishness, right? You know when it's easy to see that? After the fact, before the fact, or while you're preaching a sermon in church. It's really, really easy to see that. You know when it's sometimes hard? When I, when I get a whiff of pickle juice and that triggers something in me and all of a sudden my kid, who I just reminded five seconds ago, is using that little soldier for some other purpose. Say butter or syrup. Okay, happens all the time. Let's move on from dish towels because you're going to lose the point of this entire sermon. Here's one more question I have for you. Think of your last conflict, whether you think it's silly or not right now. Think of your last conflict, and let me ask one more question. Would you give your permission for that conflict to be recorded and read for centuries to come? Okay? I'm not going to take a raise of hands, but here's my hunch this morning. Most of you would would say, no, I'm not signing that waiver at all. I don't want that. You know what we have in Acts chapter 15? We have two very big very public, very recorded conflicts. And we're going to get to look at conflict in the house of God, conflict among Christians. And there's group conflict in the early church, and there's personal conflict between two missionaries. How relevant is the Bible? We all have personal conflict. We all need help with how to resolve conflict. Maybe some of today will come as a reminder. Maybe God's going to show you something brand new. You know, life should come with this warning level. It should say at all times that conflict is coming. No matter what today is, conflict is coming. Isn't that true? I mean, it's a certainty. You might be right in the midst of conflict. You're like, it's already here. I got news for you. There's more coming. There's more coming after that. It's just a natural part of life that conflict is an absolute certainty. Don't you love that the Bible never lies about its heroes? The Bible is a very honest book. And if men wrote the Bible, apart from divine uh, intervention, divine guidance, divine authorship, then what would happen is we would have a tainted view of our heroes. There'd be things in the Bible uh, that would never be included except for God allowing it. Think about how much conflict abounds in the Bible. Our first parents, Adam and Eve. Conflict? Yes or no? Absolutely. Absolutely. Adam and Eve give birth to Cain and Abel. Conflict? Yeah. The first family starts in conflict, and it never, ever, ever, ever ends. And here we are. I want to take one life. Think about David. Tons of famous fights in the Bible. David and Goliath? Good. Stands up for God, fights a battle. David and Uriah the Hittite? Bad. That conflict is him covering up his sin. And then just think of sort of the haunting, long sadness of David and Saul, the king. Just this long, drawn-out conflict. It's a really sad story, and it's just ripe with conflict the entire time. I've used this quote before, but John Maxwell says this. He says, everything worthwhile in life is uphill. This is part of living in a cursed world, a fallen world. Things aren't just as they're designed. We know this to be true. We know this from our jobs to our relationships. He went on to say this, sadly, many people have uphill hopes and downhill habits. 
Today, what I want to do from Acts 15, I know I told you 1 Corinthians 15, that's where we're starting. Acts 15, um, I want to pass on some uphill habits that God gives us to go with our uphill life. This is relevant to everyone in the room because we all have conflict. If there's one central truth I want you to write down, if there's 30 seconds that those of us who struggle with ADD uh, have, focus in right now. Okay, here it is. Here's Acts 15 in a nutshell. The central truth I want you to write down is this. The gospel both creates and resolves conflict. Think about Jesus. Jesus embodies the gospel. He is the good news. Was there conflict with Jesus? Absolutely. Was there resolution of conflict with Jesus? Absolutely. We just see this over and over and over through the four gospels and certainly on into the early church. The God of the Bible is a warrior God and a peacemaking God. He's one who fights and he's one who builds bridges and makes peace. We're commanded to do and be likewise in the same spirit of Jesus. I want you to think for a moment just in your own personal life. Where did you learn conflict resolution and did it work? Where did you learn conflict resolution and did it work? Um, any middle school boys in the room right now? Middle schoolers, let me see your hands if you're here. All right, a new middle schooler. My middle schooler, I think he's serving in kids' class right now. Um, middle school boys, um, there's something really mystical that happens right around middle school. I was a junior high pastor for several years, and I watched this happen. I've seen this happen um, next door at John uh, Muir Middle School. I was a middle school boy at one point, so I've just seen this. Um, and it's a really great thing, but it needs training, Okay. Middle school boys, here's what happens. Sweet little Joey becomes big, crazy conflict Joey, right? In middle school, there is a pulling away from the parents. It's not just relegated to boys, but boys can suddenly get very aggressive. Boys can suddenly get very, um, you know, like, like trying to flex their muscle a little bit, even if they're skinny little rails like I was in junior high. And so they'll do it verbally, they'll do it with their facial expressions, right? They'll do it with their words, they'll do it with their silence, they'll do it however they can. And this is actually a really, really good thing. Next door, um, we've had a lot of aggressive junior high boys in particular next door. It's been a real problem. For the first time in 16 years, I broke up a fight uh, out here on the front lawn one day after school, early in the school year. It has led to some really good conversations. I was sitting uh, next door in a meeting with the vice principal, and, um, and she was laying out her plan for how to deal with these aggressive middle school age boys. And let me just say, it was crazy. It was an awful plan. And I sat there, and I had to, I just had to breathe. I am not a fly off the, you know, like rage temper guy. That's not me, but I had to sit there and just contain myself, and I was really just uh, hearing, I was really trying to listen to understand what was being said. And after this plan was laid out, um, I think there might have been in this meeting two female administrators, my wife and myself. And I said, with all due respect, no one in this room has been a junior high boy before, except for me. I said, I also served as a junior high pastor, and I'm raising one right now. So if I may, can I lay out why I think there's some fatal flaws to the plan that you have, and may I suggest something different? My wife can attest, I, I am not at a loss for words very often, believe it or not. Shocker. 
I was at a loss for words. You know why? Because I was praying, God help me right now. Give words according to the need of the moment. Let every man be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And when they were done talking, I had to just gather myself. I actually looked at my wife for several seconds. That's a long time for me. And then I formulated my plan, and I lovingly laid out a plan, and they were actually blown away by it. They said, boy, every parent that we've talked to is just punitive. If someone bullies my kids, they want them punished, expelled, whatever else. This is an actual plan. They really received it really well. Do you know why and how that happened? It happened because the spirit of the risen Jesus Christ is in me. This is not any glory to me. The spirit of the risen Jesus is in me. I took a moment, I remembered scripture that is lodged in my brain, speaking principles, listening principles, and I was coached in this, friends. I had an amazing dad who modeled this for me. I bring up this story for this simple reason. Um, Junior high boys need to be groomed into men. And that aggressiveness, that like, like all of that, that's good. But it's got to be honed. Can't just be like run wild. So in the same way, junior high Christians, regardless of men or women, need to be trained to grow into adulthood. And in Acts 15, we have this lesson on how to grow into adulthood in the area of conflict. I was thinking about, for me, I learned church conflict. Um, I've been a part of really three churches. This is the third church I've ever been a part of. You guys know I grew up at a place called Los Gatos Christian Church. I was on staff there, and I got to watch good and bad laid out for me, modeled for me about how Christians handle conflict. You know what stood out to me the most, though? There was one meeting in all of my Sundays and midweek and youth group and actually being on staff at that church. There was one Sunday that lodged in my brain most profoundly, and it was an awful experience. It was what we called a family meeting. Sometimes when churches call family meetings, you're like, "Uh uh-oh. And they're well attended because it's like watching a wreck in IndyCar racing or something. Like, you know this is going to be good. So it was packed. And my future boss, my future pastor that I was going to serve under, he was on stage as part of a mediation committee that was outside the church family. It got ugly. It was really hard to watch. It was very painful. Lodged deep in my heart. When I went to Valley Church, I was able to um, witness... Godly men and women um, use the Bible as the referee, calling foul where it's foul and fair play where it's fair play, and have grace when it's unclear. And I was really groomed and trained in some really, really good ways. Here's what I want you to know. I hope and pray that as you're here at Neighborhood Bible Church, I hope that you see a general upward trend, that as you read and reflect on Scripture, you go, yeah, that's how we're trying to practice and live it out here at this church. If you're new, I promise you will fail. If you're old, you already know that, right? We, we are just people in process, um, but there are some clear scriptural things of how we are to do it. How about our homes? Our homes are to be God's first and best greenhouse for spiritual growth. The home is intended to be God's primary and first and best greenhouse for spiritual growth. I know that Father's Days can be painful because sometimes the lessons you may have learned from dad need to be unlearned. You go, man, that's not actually how it should have been done. Dad, you handed me things that are painful and hard and difficult and flat out wrong. You know what? God parents us. He fathers us. He guides us in that. He kind of leads us out of that. 
I want to just explain this title for a moment just so that we don't have misunderstanding. Acts 15 is a study in fighting as a new man. And there's two big conflicts that happen. First is between groups of people. The second is between two individuals. We can relate to this. This is relevant today. There are groups of people fighting and not fighting well. There are individuals that are fighting and not fighting well. Here's what's interesting. Everyone in this conflict, in this chapter, is a professing Christian. So that's kind of a unique lens. We're going to look at this of how are Christians supposed to experience conflict. Here's how I want you to read this. Do you see the word new in this title? Okay. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I, this is a play on like fight like a man. Get up and fight like a man, right? thought that was a good Father's Day thing to, to do. Let me be really clear. I know there's a boxing ring in here. I am not proponents of physical violence. That's not what this sermon's about. If you think you're going to hear that, you're like, finally, something I can use. That's not what's being said. I'm being playful, but I'm actually being serious. Physical violence is not what I'm talking about. We're talking about conflict and how to handle it. A boxing ring is sort of a little metaphor for us. Fight like a new man. That's what you want to be reading this as. Do you see new in black? Okay, you can see it. There's so, there's so little response this morning that I'm like, do you see new? Everyone's I think you're just smelling bacon, and that's the thing that's throwing everyone off. Here's the other thing. Some of you ladies are like, well, this ought to be good. It's only for the men. It's not for the men. Man can be man as distinct from woman, and it can mean mankind, humanity, correct? That's true in the Bible. It's true in our regular vernacular. I'm using it in the second way. So welcome women to the conversation. It's fight like a new man. That means you as well. When you become a Christian, you are made new. Catch this. Everything changes about you, but not all at once. The theological word for that is called sanctification. Justification says you are made just in an instant, just as you're born in an instant, but you don't grow up in an instant, thankfully. (laughs) Junior high boy popping out, that'd be tough. So you grow slowly over time. So it is in your Christian walk. So everything changes, Christian, but not all at once. I want to talk about the first Adam and the second Adam, which is sort of a a pretty obscure minor point in, in terms of how many times it's referenced, but it's a giant thing that the scripture talks about a ton. 1 Corinthians 15, 45. The first Adam equals Adam from Genesis. First man created by God. We are all physical descendants of Adam. The second Adam is who? Jesus Christ. We, as Christians, are spiritual descendants of the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, The last Adam, that's Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. Look at verse 47. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man, that's Jesus, is from heaven. Look at verse 49. Just as we have been born in the image of the man of dust, that's our physical descendancy from Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That's our spiritual descendancy descendancy from Jesus. Remember Jesus says you must be born again? We all are born as image bearers because we're born descendants of the first Adam. Those called and those who receive by faith are now in the second Adam. That's Jesus Christ. And that's our spiritual descendancy. So when I say the new man, fight like a new man, this is what I'm getting at. Make sense? Make sense? 
Are we tracking? Okay. I saw a couple nods that time, which is awesome. I like that. That helps me. So fight like a new man. Men, women, boys, girls. That's who we're talking about. The new man that's being created by the spirit of Christ in us. All right. A quick word um, about fighting. Uh, We did a whole series called Dwell Well in the House of the Lord. It's all from 1 Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, it's a pastoral letter from Paul to Timothy. And he's saying, in case I don't come back, this is how you'll know how to behave in the church, the household of God. And the whole letter lays out, how are we supposed to be relating to each other? This is a whole series that lives online. Um, I would encourage you, if you haven't checked it out, go there. And uh, you can almost use it topically as you see a topic that you go, man, we're, we're struggling with that in our own a biological household, how do we, how do we get at this? Um, we celebrate conflict in our home, and I don't mean that we have a holiday <laughs> where it's like, conflict day! Um, but we celebrate it in this sense. Um, when it happens, instead of hiding from it, dismissing it, not talking about it, throwing things at each other, and then just never processing it, we take conflict, knowing it's certain, and we realize we can grow from this. We can handle this in wise and foolish ways. Lest you put pastor families on a pedestal, we do both all the time. Whenever there's conflict and it's handled in a really good way, we celebrate that. We call it out. We talk about it. We coach that. When it's handled poorly and yours truly is in line for this as well, we talk about it. We point it out. We look to the scripture. We say, this ought not be. And we model what repentance looks like. We model what receiving grace and making recompense looks like. Here's a way I would say it. We don't, um, we don't look for conflict, but we, we can learn from it. Now, lest you think that, uh, that this happens all the time, every time, it doesn't. Sometimes it's just, can everyone pipe down? We're just trying to get to church, right? Some of you are like, oh, that hits close to home. Um, and often that's when the enemy will attack, right? Um, so sometimes we just like, kind of press on, but, but to learn from it, to go back and coach from it, to, to process it is a really good thing. Here's the two conflicts. Let me just kind of walk through these. Um, and if you want to take notes, you can kind of jot these things down. Um, Kate, don't freak out. I'm just getting my water, okay? Sometimes the pastor does crazy things. I'm just drinking right now. All right, conflict one. This sermon is going to require that you go and read Acts 15 a bunch and look for it. We have, there's no way we can sort of dig into all of this at once. Um, but who, who is in this corner? Who is in this corner? It's basically Jewish Christians who saw God saving Gentiles firsthand, saw the Holy Spirit um, as the seal on these Gentile believers, saw some miraculous things going on as they traveled, versus Jewish Christians who were formerly Pharisees and didn't see Gentiles coming to faith. Okay, that's, that's the who of this. What's the issue? It's Gentile salvation. What's a Gentile? Someone help me out. Simple answer. A non-Jew. Okay, just to be clear. Just want to be clear about that. So you have Jews and non-Jews. If you're not Jewish here today, you are a Gentile. So what must a Gentile do to be saved? That's what's on the table. Look at Acts 14, verse 27. We're just picking up the very last part of Acts 14 before we move into 15. It says, and when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Remember that Andres took us on this journey because they went on a journey. 
these, these missionary journeys. Verse 1 of, of chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Stop for a moment. Before looking at what to fight or how to do it, you must determine in advance that there is a fight on our hands. You just need to know that in advance. That's part of conflict is coming. And, and knowing what to fight for and what not to fight for is really important. Here's a key phrase I want you to always be on the lookout for. Unless you blank, you cannot be saved. That's right from Acts 15. Unless you blank, you cannot be saved. What it's doing is it's ushering in this formula. Jesus plus blank saves you. And right now, today, many, many, many professing Christians around the world would say that Jesus plus something saves you. You know why Paul and Barnabas were so fired up and were willing to get into the ring? is because this is gospel purity at stake. Salvation is at stake. How one is saved is worth getting in the ring and fighting about. Remember, the gospel causes conflict because there's lots of ideas about how to be saved. Verse 2, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. What's the question? What must Gentiles do to be saved? Uh, I want to show you a picture here for a second. Here's part of the issue. How Jewish do non-Jewish people have to become once they become Christians? I did a wedding at Valley Church. This is probably 20 years ago now. My friends, Steve and Kristen, and if you can't tell, they're on chairs, and Steve's wearing a little hat. Now, some of you are clued in. You know, he must be Jewish. He is. It was fascinating to work with Steve. He was a co-worker of mine at the church. And to find himself growing up in a non-Christ-affirming, non-Christian-believing Jewish home, and then receive the gospel, become a Christian, and have all this stuff that he grew up with making sense, finding its completion, all these promises coming to completion in Jesus. All these things he did as a kid, all of a sudden found new meaning as he read the Bible. And every week I would meet with him. It was just really incredible. You know what Steve didn't do to me? He didn't say, hey, Dave, for us to be brothers, um, when you marry your children, you have to do this at their wedding. You know what else we got to do? Only wedding I've ever done it. We crunched a glass um, on stage uh, after the wedding. That was kind of a fun thing. I've never crunched a glass before uh, or since, but that was the only time. Um, Acts 15 is getting at the heart of this question. Can Steve and I be in fellowship as a Jew and a Gentile united in Christ? And if so, what part of Jewish culture do I need to take on to be saved? And that's the really key point of all this. Look at verse 4. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Verse 5, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Both groups had really strong convictions, didn't they? The Jewish Christians who used to be Pharisees, like Paul, are now Christians, had a strong, deep conviction 
that God gave us the law. He related to us through the law. It's actually embedded in their identity. How can he relate to people any other way? They didn't see it right away. I think a generous reading of this is to say those of the Judaizers, those of the sort of Pharisee sect who had become Christians, that's a miracle in and of itself because all through the Gospels, the Pharisees hate Jesus. They're trying to destroy Jesus. That's a massive miracle. What they're doing is they're living what they know. So a generous reading just says, look, they are concerned about the holiness and purity of God. That's a really, really good thing. Why is Paul and Barnabas so fired up? Because to add extra layers onto their salvation is to muddy up the gospel. It's called heresy. And if they didn't get this right, who knows what the trajectory of what salvation looks like would have become. So they saw this as a really important thing. Let me quickly show you this thing. I've, caught, I've talked about the New City Catechism for a long time. One of our favorite things we've done as a devotional tool as a family in a really long time. There's 52 questions. There happens to be 52 weeks in a year. One year, we just took one question a week and memorized it. We did the kid version because we have a hard time memorizing. But this lives on my phone. The way we do family devotions, many times on a Saturday morning, we'll just review five questions at a time. When we got to this question, uh, we got to question 29. How can we be saved? Before we even looked at anything, we just said as a family, of all the questions we're memorizing, this is probably one of the number one questions. How can we be saved? It's a really important thing to get really, really clear on. That's what this fight was about. Here's the answer. Only by faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. Do you see how this little catechism allows you to talk about big theological words and begin teaching your children and reminding yourself what these things mean? Man, this is a really good one. I actually reviewed my, with these with my kids on Friday. I said, hey, this might show up on church. Here's number question uh, 33. A simple question like, how can you be saved, actually leads to other questions. Watch how question 33 follows up on this. Should those who have faith in Christ seek their salvation through their own works or anywhere else? Do you see how this ties into Acts 15? This is what the Pharisees were doing. The former Pharisees, now Christians. They say, hey, Gentiles need to be circumcised to be saved. Just like we are. And that's what is at the heart of this question. Here's the answer. No. Everything necessary to salvation is found in Christ. This is in your notes, but Ephesians 2.8 is an amazing verse to memorize. It captures both of these ideas together. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Let's move on to, to conflict number two. Conflict number two has to do with two people. Look at the very bottom of the chapter, verse 36. And after some days, Paul and Barnabas, uh, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word to the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Who's in this one? It's Paul in one corner, Barnabas in the other. Two co-workers, two missionaries, friends. People who God had done incredible things with. What are they fighting about? Who should we take on the next mission? Here's the heart of the conflict. Barnabas is a builder of people. Remember he's called the son of encouragement? Paul is a planter of churches. Sometimes sparks fly. When you have a people-oriented person doing ministry with a task-oriented person, 
right? Do we need feelers and thinkers in the church say yes? That's right. Do we need people people and task people in the church say yes? Yeah. Is there conflict when those two people get together and try to do anything? Yes! That's what's going on. Where the first one resolves really, really well, this one doesn't. I think this split is actually a black mark on the early church. I love that it's in the Bible. Because it doesn't derail people's faith. We're going to see that there's, there's resolution um, to all of this. Um, I have about a two-hour sermon that I'm trying to cram into a few more minutes. So let me just skip down to give you something that I hope is really, really practical. Anytime a preacher says that, by the way, that's actually, an, it's not anything on you. It's just an admission that I don't know how to time manage well up here and that I talk about towels too much. All right. Um, here's some uphill habits. Here's the four uphill habits I want you to jot down. If you're taking notes, write these four things down. Number one is aim at love. Fight the good fight, not every fight. We say this in our house sometimes. Hey, fight the good fight, not every fight. There's a lot of conflict because there's a lot of people in our home. A lot of our kids like to like jump in. Now, none of you ever do this on social media, right? I mean, all that is is a constant jumping in and weighing in on everyone else's fight all the time, constantly. It's kind of shocking. It's not led to some good things. Fight the good fight, not every fight. The group was fighting about making sure God was honoring and fighting for the benefits of those who don't yet believe, that we don't heap extra burdens on. In fact, Peter calls out the hypocrisy. Wait a minute. Us and our fathers can't keep this law. We don't even do this. If the law is required plus Jesus, we aren't saved. Look it up. You'll see it in Acts 15. Verse 19 is so powerful. James gets up and says, Therefore my judgment is this. We should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. I like how NIV sums it up this way. We should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Neighborhood Bible Church, can I just have this lodge in your brain and roll around and think this all the time? We should not be making it difficult for irreligious, pagan people, godless people to turn to God. That means we should know what are we willing to fight about and really drive home and say we can't budge on this because God doesn't budge on this. And what are the traditions of man? What are personal preferences? What are things we just sort of like? We should not be making it difficult individually, as a family, as a church. We should not be making it difficult for those who are turning to God. And this is just a giant part of what the word share uh, means at this church. Here's number two. Find resolution. Fight to resolve, not to win or to crush. How did things resolve with the group? You can study this as a community group this week. But here's what they went to. They went to personal experience. Peter said, hey, God chose me to preach to the Gentiles, probably thinking about the dream that he got when Cornelius, a Gentile, was getting saved, declaring all foods clean and starting to un-Jewishize some of his, his limiting thought of how God might be working. So he talked about personal experience. They appeal to Scripture. They say, wait a minute, doesn't the prophet Amos say that there's coming a day when God's going to do this? I think this is the fulfillment of that. And they appeal to the Holy Spirit. Can I just show you that it's not airtight? It's messy when you try to come to resolution. Look this up. Find this. I'm not going to tell you which verse it is. But in Acts 15, it says this, and it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. 
Some of you computer scientists, you're engineers. I have an engineer dad. Man, engineer and computer science people, they like everything buttoned up, neat, clean, perfect squared corners. That's not what this is. This is much more messy. This is much more nebulous. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Some of us are like, wait a minute. Where's my airtight verse, chapter and verse that I want to quote? That's why leading in the church, loving in the church, trying to figure this stuff out, you have to be comfortable with some ambiguity. You have to be comfortable with bringing people along at different paces. Let me keep moving. By the way, um, how how did the resolution go with Paul and Barnabas? They split up. Barnabas, uh, Paul sails away, and we never hear Barnabas mentioned again in the book of Acts. I think that's incredibly sad. One of the things I was going to do, we don't have time. I think we could have found, I think we, I, I think we could kind of like brainstorm, what's a compromise? What's a middle ground these two men could have fought for? They both care about the urgency of the mission. Gentiles need to hear the saving grace of God. Paul says, I'm not taking a, a guy that abandoned, you know, ship. I'm not taking him. Barnabas says, give him a second chance. God's mercies are new every morning. They both have scripture. We could have brainstormed uh, ways to, to work around that. They didn't find resolution. Here's number three. Lean on team. This sounds like hop on pop, which is Dr. Seuss, appropriate for Father's Day. Lean on team simply means this. Seek wise counselors. If I'm, if I'm eyeball deep in towels, I might need... <laughs> I might need Steve over there to say, Steve, help me out, brother. Am I freaking out about the towels? Dave, you're freaking out about the towels. Knock it off. Okay, thank you. We need wise counselors to get sort of out of the the situation. Man, just look at how many people are listed. I counted six specific names listed in how the conflict was was, was resolved between these two groups. Not to mention the whole church. The whole church weighs in on this. Let me be really clear. If you are a member of Neighborhood Bible Church, you are not just a member any more than you just have ligaments in your elbow. What happens if the ligaments in my elbow decide to take six months off of being ligaments? I've got a problem, right? The whole, pro- the, the whole body has a problem. So church, figure out your role. Commit to it. Walk in it. Otherwise, the body of Christ, some other part of the body is going to get overworked to compensate for that missing elbow ligament. We are not going to be as faithful and fruitful as we can as a church without every member stepping in and doing this. And what this says is that they were actually instrumental in sorting through this conflict. Let me move on to the last one. The last one is quite simply move on. Camp in conflict, don't dwell there. What does that mean? It means whenever you go camping, you understand you don't live there. You're not setting up shop for long term. You're like, how do we at some point, I love camping. And at some point I'm like, all right, we're done. Like, let's go home. I'm done with camping. Don't just dwell. Don't live in conflict. Move on. It's a great scripture I want to give to you. Live at peace with all men so far as it depends on you. There's some conflict you, you do not have the power or capability to resolve. You know why? It takes two. If the other person doesn't want to resolve it, you can't. You actually have to move on in the Lord. Do everything possible that you can. But secondly, look at how this group 
came up with a plan, a path forward. They actually send two guys, say, hey, this is our decision. Take it back to the church at Jerusalem. And you know what happened? Great rejoicing, strengthening and encouragement of the church happened because they moved on. They found a resolution. Band, why don't you guys come on up? We're going to close with probably just have time for one song. But I want to show you this picture. This is our, our series picture. Look at all these great scriptures we didn't get to. Look them up. They're in the Bible. Good stuff. Um, man, I, I just, I love this picture. I love that, that it's just a picture of just, uh, honestly, a bunch of regular people that make up the church are empowered by the spark of the Holy Spirit and are working together. We have the power to finish the mission. And along the way, we're going to come into conflict with each other. We're going to have groups that need resolution. We're going to have individuals that need to fight for middle ground. Church, you have a massive role to play in guarding and building up this church. I thought that was the elder's job. It's part of our job. But guess what? The church is to build itself up in love. All through the scriptures, you have already the authority and the gifting and the call to build, maintain, purify, and add to this community. So let's continue doing that. The last word I would say is this, that ethnic walls and cultural suspicion are destroyed by the gospel. Isn't that good news? Right here at this church, if God can bridge Jew-Gentile bridges, guess what? Spanish-speaking, English-speaking, piece of cake. He's doing that here. He's begun a great work at this church, breaking down some of those suspicions, some of those walls. And there's more work to do. There's more to cooperate with. So church, again, this takes all of us. Don't wait for the next uh, bilingual service that we do. Find ways to do that today. God, thank you so much for your love for us. I thank you for, um, as we think about fathers, God, for you fathering us, for being our parent. God, we love you. We submit to you. Uh, We welcome your coaching, your rebuke, your encouragement, your instruction. Amen.